listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. North of Zero by Slippin' Mickeys on AO3. Chapter 11. The Traitor. Winter gave way to spring. Snow still clung to the earth in shady patches, but all around them brown was losing the battle to green. Weeds coming up from the wet ground in tender shoots, shaggy leaves unfurling from newly awoken trees. Their cache of stores for the winter had been thoroughly depleted, William eating everything in sight. Like the awakening of spring, the boy was blossoming too. She had noticed in the last few weeks that his wrists were beginning to peek out from his cuffs, and he'd already begun wearing an old pair of Mulder's boots, having outgrown the ones he'd arrived in. His chest was filling out, becoming broader, and she'd passed by the bathroom last week and found William and Mulder crowded around the tiny pedestal sink, Mulder showing the boy how to shave with a straight razor. The boy seemed content, coming out of his shell and talking and joking around with Mulder, helping around the house, slowly revealing more and more of himself to the two people who'd given him life. He was still reticent to use his powers in front of them, which Scully understood after Mulder had told her about what William had revealed on the ice, but she tried to be reassuring and confident around him and every now and then he would reveal some of the more supernatural things he could do, especially when Mulder was around. The boy wasn't as easy with her, but then she wasn't as easy with him. Her youth had been John Hughes movies and different Navy bases, singing along to hair bands with her sister in a rusty car with a missing cigarette lighter and ratty speakers. She stole cigarettes from her mother's purse, and passed notes in history class. William had been fending for himself in an increasing wilderness in a post-apocalyptic world. There was no music, other than their poor attempts at singing. No school, no cigarettes. She wondered if he could remember a single movie. How do you raise a child in a world you barely understand? How do you raise a child whose experience is so much different than your own? While the sight of him always warmed something within her, at times she still felt like she could barely call him hers. They had done well with fish and game over the winter, and it was time to unload their haul and replenish their supplies. They had set off two days prior for Jericho's Keep, where a portly woman named Margot Edgerton ran a farm that also served as their cooperative's trading post. Will had been excited but tentative, and had told Mulder the night before, as they camped on the edge of the Green Lake watershed, that he was reluctant to leave their valley. Nevertheless, they were nearly out of food, and had packed up early, mounting the heavy-laden horses for the last leg of their their journey to the keep. The day was bright and dry, and they'd made great time. They crested the rise over the farm, and Pumpkin bellowed out a neigh. After a moment, they heard an echoing call from Gypsy, 
Marlowe's chestnut bay who was trotting around the small paddock outside of Marlowe's barn, throwing his head back in excitement. The horses began an eager canter in Gypsy's direction. Scully watched as William grabbed at the pommel on his saddle to keep his balance. He was getting better, but he was not a horseman yet. Marlowe emerged from the farmhouse, swinging a tea towel over her shoulder and putting a hand up to shield her eyes from the day's glare. After a moment, she waved, recognized them, and headed for the dusty driveway adjacent to the paddock. She approached just as Mulder was swinging out of his saddle. He shook Marlowe's hand, nodding, and saying her name once in greeting before holding out a hand to help Scully off her horse. It wasn't necessary, but it was sweet. You found someone, Marlowe said, nodding at William, who stayed in the saddle, fidgeting a bit as she shook Scully's hand. Marlowe, this is William, Scully said, smiling at William encouragingly. The boy jumped down smoothly. William, this is Marlowe Edgerton. She trades in dairy and eggs and some produce and runs the cooperative. I trade in the stuff that's hard to kill, Marlowe said, leaning back with their hands on her substantial hips and giving William a warm smile. I'm good with animals, but I've got a brown thumb. Hello, said William shyly. Marlowe looked at William assessingly and then looked curiously at Mulder and Scully. Scully wondered if she was picking up on the resemblance. After a moment, she huffed out a quiet, huh, and turned on her heel, leaving the others to follow her. You see anything on your way through? Marlowe asked as they all made their way toward the farmhouse. Last trader that came here from the south said that there was significantly more ship activity in that vector. Maybe one or two more than usual, Scully said, shooting a look to William. Hmm, said Marlowe thoughtfully. Tisdale, Marlowe's big black Newfoundland mix, came woofing up to the group with his tail wagging, sticking his nose into hands and crotches and making himself a general nuisance. Scully scratched the dog behind the ears and gave his big block of a head a gentle push. William seemed to come alive a bit from the dog's attention, a smile cracking his face as he thumped Tisdale's flank. The dog leaned into his legs in bliss. Go on then, Tizzy, Marlowe said, pointing off toward the barn. The dog barked joyfully once and then trotted off toward the south pasture. William watched them wistfully. He's not very bright, but he gets the job done, Marlowe said. She narrowed her eyes at William. You want to go with him? He'd love the company. William nodded happily and followed the dog, who doubled back to lean into the boy's legs again before they both took off cheerfully for the pasture. Marlowe watched, charmed, and then started up the steps to her house. Where'd you find him? He found us, Mulder said. Marlowe paused at the top step and turned to them. Ain't that something, she said. Scully was definitely picking up an undertone, but Marlowe breezed through it and threw open the farmhouse door. Come on in, then. She saw them seated at the table in her kitchen and then leaned back and gave them a sly smile. Y'all want coffee? she asked. Mulder blanched. You have coffee? he asked. Marlowe's smile grew. Got it last week. Roasted up nice. You catch any extra fish out there at that cabin of yours? 
I've got ten pounds of smoked walleye with your name on it, Mulder said. Marlowe slapped her hands together and stood. Either of you take cream? They shuffled into Marlowe's cellar slowly, Mulder careful not to bang his head into the low ceiling. The space held the pungent tang of a dirt floor and goat's milk, and always reminded Mulder, oddly, of a village pub he used to frequent outside of Oxford. I take it you'll be needing more than usual, Marlowe said, zipping up the old Carhartt jacket she kept on a hook by the door. The cellar was always colder than Mulder remembered. Got that extra mouth to feed, and a teenage one at that. Scully nodded. We can bring you more game, more fish. I know you're good for it, Marlowe said. I'll spot you. Mulder swung the pack of smoked meat and fish from his shoulders. You say he found you? Marlowe asked, eyes narrowed. Yes, Scully said, instantly closed off and on the edge of impolite. Marlowe looked at Scully for a long moment. I don't mean nothing by it, she finally said, being inquisitive, but I trade just as much in information as I do in cheese and eggs. At this, she looked to Mulder. I've heard some things, she said, swinging her eyes to Scully. Marlowe, Mulder said, his voice just shy of a growl. None of that, Marlowe said sharply, as if she were disciplining a headstrong colt. I hope you know me well enough by now. I trade. I don't threaten. Mulder gave her a micro nod, and she took a long minute before she went on, pulling down several cheeses from a shelf. She put them in a burlap sack and handed them over. I've had some religious types come to trade lately. How religious? Scully asked. Which religious? Mulder immediately followed. The new kind, said Marlowe quite seriously. Mulder and Scully exchanged a look. They say they've been seeing things in the stars. Horseshit, mostly. Crazy talk. But they're talking about working with the aliens, you see. Saying they've been sent by God. When was this? A few weeks back. But it wasn't just the one, Mulder. Arlo Meyer says the same thing to me just last week. Met a whole band of them traveling up from Beulah. Arlo said they weren't right in the eyes. How did he mean? Scully asked, her voice low and clipped. She was worried. What about their eyes? He didn't say. I assumed he meant they were... At this, Marlo made a crazy gesture with her finger. They were all headstrong talking about a prophecy. Mulder felt a pang of worry. What was the prophecy? Rapture type shit? Marlowe said. Someone who could either save the world or destroy it? They're looking for people. Who are they looking for? Scully asked, her tone indicating she already knew. Marlowe looked at her for a moment, then answered, quoting, A boy who followed a star, a man who grew crops in a barren field, a mother immortal. Mulder tried to swallow, but his mouth had gone dry. Now, I never much believed in the virgin birth, Marlowe went on. I knew too many Marys who pledged a vow of chastity out one side of their mouth and gave Horatio Felatio with the other. Mulder had to hold in a nervous snort. But it don't matter what I believe, does it? These people are nuts, carrying on about the new Holy Trinity. How's that? 
Scully asked, her voice husky and dry. The father, Marlow went on, boring holes into Mulder with her eyes. The son. With this, she popped her chin up to gesture at the open cellar door, and then turned her intense gaze to Scully. And the Holy Spirit. There was a tense silence, and then a shadow fell across the doorway of the cellar. Mulder looked up to see William standing there. He couldn't see the boy's face, backlit as it was by the spring sun, but his posture was tense, and Mulder could hear Tisdale off in the distance, his barks echoing with an unfriendly tenor alerting danger. Well, Mulder started to say when the boy ran down the steps and into the cold of the cellar itself. They're coming, the boy said hoarsely, his voice cracking on the last word. Who's coming? said Marlowe, her voice and face all confusion. Ships, William said. Lots of them. Damn it, Scully hissed from Mulder's elbow. The blanket is out with the horses. Mulder felt the sharp drop of adrenaline into his system. Rarely did ships come during the day, and they were nearly always alone, scouting ships out on routine patrol. The low rumble started then, ten times more powerful than he'd ever felt shaking the floor beneath them like a California tumbler. Marlowe trotted up the steps of the cellar faster than her substantial figure should have allowed and pulled the rope that swung the cellar door shut, the door slamming just as one of the horses screamed in the field, its terrified whinny cut short with the slam of wood on wood. No time for it, Marlowe said, and shuffled back down the steps moving quickly to the back of the cellar where she had little rounds of goat cheese stacked on wooden shelves that went all the way up to the ceiling. Come on, she said, pulling open a door that Mulder had never seen before, cut into the side of the wall next to the spare tin barrels in which she collected milk. In here, quickly. Mulder ushered Scully and William into the small dark space and then followed himself, pulling the door closed behind him. The door itself was heavy and cumbersome. It felt like pulling clothes to bank vault. The ground below them still shook, but the sound was more subdued in the space, and even their breathing, quick and frightened, had an insulated quality to it. Mulder heard the sound of light metal meeting metal, and then a dull glow emerged from his left. Marlowe had lit a kerosene lamp and had turned it all the way down. Scully, standing close next to him, craned her neck to look around the room, and he followed suit. The room was stacked, even the door to the space itself, from floor to ceiling with old phone books and yellow pages, most of them turned sepia with age. The ceiling of the room was soft and metallic with what looked like aluminum foil, but upon closer inspection revealed itself to be reflective foil-wrapped fiberglass duct insulation, which Mulder could see ran from the ceiling itself down the walls and to the floor and wrapped the whole of the room in a cocoon-like swaddling. He swung a look toward Marlowe, who shrugged. My husband was the paranoid type, she said, and a good thing, too. Scully put a hand to the wall, her face still a mask of concern. It's always worked for me, Marlowe said, though her confidence sounded as though it may be waning. Mulder looked to William, who was standing very still, 
his arms at his side, his hands curled in the light fists, eyes closed. Can everyone be quiet, please? The boy said. After a moment, he cracked his eye and looked at Marlo. Can you not breathe so loud? Marlo nodded mutely and pulled an albuterol inhaler from the pocket of her apron, shaking it twice and taking a shallow puff, her eyes never once leaving the young man before her. Mulder could see William's irises roll back into his head as his eyelids fluttered closed, and he felt at the moment the vibration under their feet took on a new frequency. After a moment, a high whine joined the low rumble, and the hairs on the back of Mulder's neck stood on end. Then, a monstrous groan of metal followed by a concussive reverb that ground up through the floor, a tremor that started in Mulder's feet and shot up through his ankles, legs, and then through the top of his head. A two-second pause, and then the same cataclysmic reverberation. Then another, and another, and then silence. William inhaled and seemed to come to himself, as though he'd been in a trance. He took a deep breath and looked to his parents. They'll be airborne again in a few hours, he said. We should go. The lead blanket idea had come from Rebecca, who had been a dental hygienist before the invasion. They had broken into several dental offices and taken the lead-lined aprons that they draped across patients' laps for use during x-rays, and she had skillfully begun sewing them together when she and Jordan had been taken by the light. Scully had finished the job, suturing the last few pieces into a covering that would save her and Mulder many times, and would have saved Rebecca and her daughter if only they had finished. They met Smith before the abduction, in an outdoor store outside of Hamilton. He was thrashing his way through the skiing gear when they entered, startling him. Mulder, Scully, and Rebecca had been on a mission to find a new jacket for Jordan, and hadn't seen another soul for a week. Smith was armed for bear and had raised a weapon at them, but lowered it the second he'd seen the eight-year-old girl. They found out later that he'd had a daughter who'd been lost during the initial invasion. Oh, he'd said in a baffled voice, seeing the girl, like he'd forgotten children were a thing that could still exist. Mulder and Scully had lowered their weapons, and they'd entered into a quick detente. A ship had come over the horizon as they were about to walk out of the store, each of them a little better outfitted than they had been when they walked in. Avoiding the crafts were a new experience for them at the time. After dropping bombs on the initial ships of the invasion, the newcomers, the faceless men, had moved south en masse. Come on, Smith had said, leading them back into the dark cave of the store. He flew down an aisle littered with a scattered display of Nalgene bottles and microbial filters, kicking them aside as the foursome followed him blindly. He turned toward an area of the store set up like a campsite. Grab a sleeping bag and get in them, quick. There, he said, pointing. The big warm ones, go. They'd all done as they were told as the rumbling of the ship started shaking the ground under them. Mulder could see the scanning light running over the parking lot outside and moving toward the store and ducked his head into his bag, Scully next to him, doing the same. Mom? 
Jordan whispered from Mulder's other side. It's okay, kid, Smith shouted. It'll be okay. The light went by them and then away. The rumbling stopped a minute or two later. Smith was the first to emerge out of his bag. Phew, he said, and then Mulder, Scully, and Rebecca tentatively poked their heads out of their own sleeping bags. It worked. Discovered it by accident when I pitched a tent outside Mississauga last week. Held my breath, ducked into my sleeping bag, and the damn thing went right by. Probably helped that I was under some thick vegetation. Damn near shit my pants. He glanced at Jordan. Oops. Sorry about my language, kid. Jordan smiled shyly at him, her hair a staticky mess from being in the sleeping bag. It's okay, the girl said. I don't mind. The sleeping bag trick would prove to be a combination of simple coverage and dumb luck, but the idea it had sparked would save countless lives. Smith was utterly devoted to Jordan after the incident, however. He was never quite the same after she was taken. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.